Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival podcast. We hope you enjoy this event, which was recorded live at the 2020 Book Festival. Hello, and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival online. It's 2020, we're in the middle of a global pandemic, and I am relieved and reassured to be here in the Book Festival studio to talk to Olivia Lang about the power of art to make a space in which to process what's happening, about why art matters. I'm here in Edinburgh and Olivia is in Suffolk, I think, is that right? I am in Suffolk looking out over a churchyard and a magnolia tree. <laughs> I'm in the assembly rooms, which is very strange, but actually rather beautiful and nice. Um, I'm Fiona Bradley. I'm the director of the Fruit Market Gallery here in Edinburgh. The gallery's programme is driven by a belief in art as a creative, active and generous cultural force through which thinking happens and through which social justice can happen, through art's capacity for disruption and change. I've spent much of the pandemic so far making the case for culture, for art in particular, and so I'm thrilled to be talking here today with Olivia Lang. Olivia won last year's James Tate Black Memorial Prize for her novel Crudo, which is sitting under there on the table. And she has published three works of nonfiction and has for several years written widely on art and culture. The book we're talking about today is Funny Weather, Art in an Emergency, sitting on top of Crudo over here. It's a collection of writings from 2011 to 2019. It's an extraordinary book of extraordinary writing. The range is extensive with many well-known artists and writers and many less well-known. Her choices are eclectic, personal, but everyone she writes about makes what I would call capacious work generous, hospitable work, elastic enough for us to find a place within it, and urgent work. It's an emergency, after all. Maria Balshaw, director of Tate, has a similar thing to say about Olivia herself. The hospitality of worldview and Olivia Lang's writing, she says, is a vital force in our disputatious present. To this, I would add that Olivia brings a novelist's way with language to bear on her subjects. Regularly, a turn of phrase stops you in your tracks. This is her on Rauschenberg. The world gnawed at him. He wanted to get out into it, to scoop it up, to show it to itself. If there's better writing on how artists think and what artists do, I'm not sure I've read it. Um, Olivia, welcome virtually to Edinburgh. Oh, that was the nicest introduction. I'm blushing to the colour of funny weather now, a pale pink. <laughs> well, I've had such a wonderful time reading and rereading this book in preparation for this event. So thank you very much. I'm going to ask you to read a short extract from the introduction to funny weather so that everyone else can hear your very, very beautiful writing because you talk much better than I can about what you write about. And that'll set, I hope, the context for our discussion. Then we'll talk together, just so everyone knows what we're going to do, we're going to talk together for about 30 minutes or so, after which we'll have time for questions from the audience. The questions from the audience appear on this tablet here for me. So please, as we're talking, do put your questions in the Q&A box, which I think is underneath us on your screens, as they occur to you, and then we'll get to as many as we can. So, Olivia, over to you, if we can. It's lovely to read from this book. It's a very strange experience to publish a book in the midst of a pandemic and then never have any sort of audience interaction at all. So I've, I've barely read from it. In fact, this is a completely fresh copy. Um, and it's just, it's very nice to be here and to do that. In November, 2015, Jennifer Higgy at Freeze asked if I'd write a regular column for the magazine. 
I chose Funny Weather as the title because I was imagining weather reports sent from the road, my primary address at the time, because I had a feeling that the political weather, already erratic, was only going to get weirder, though I by no means predicted the particular storms ahead. The first column was about the refugee crisis. Over the next four years, I wrote about many of the rapid and alarming changes that followed on its heels, from Brexit to Trump to Charlottesville, taking in the Grenfell Tower fire, racist killings by the American police, and changes in the law on sex and abortion on both sides of the Atlantic. Frankly, the news was making me crazy. It was happening at such a rate that thinking the act of making sense felt permanently balked. Every crisis, every catastrophe, every threat of nuclear war was instantly overridden by the next. There was no possibility of passing through coherent stages of emotion, let alone thinking about responses or alternatives. It seemed as if people were stuck in a spin cycle of terrified paranoia. What I wanted most, apart from a different timeline, was a different kind of time frame in which it might be possible both to feel and to think, to process the intense emotional impact of the news and to consider how to react, perhaps even to imagine other ways of being. The stopped time of a painting, say, or the drawn out minutes and compressed years of a novel in which it's possible to see patterns and consequences that are otherwise invisible. The columns I was writing used art from Poussin Turner to Anna Mendieta, Wolfgang Tillmans and Philip Guston as a way of making sense of the political situation, of wringing meaning out of what were becoming increasingly troubled times. Can art do anything? especially during periods of crisis. In 1967, George Steiner wrote a famous essay in which he observed that a concentration camp commander could read Goethe and Rilke in the evening and still carry out his duties at Auschwitz in the, in the morning, regarding this as evidence that art had failed in its highest function, to humanize. But this makes art sound like a magic bullet which should reorganize our critical and moral faculties without effort while simultaneously obliterating free will. Empathy is not something that happens to us when we read Dickens. It's work. What art does is provide material with which to think, new registers, new spaces. After that, friend, it's up to you. I don't think art has a duty to be beautiful or uplifting, and some of the work I'm most drawn to refuses to traffic in either of those qualities. What I care about more, what forms the uniting interest in nearly all the essays and criticism gathered here, are the ways in which it's concerned with resistance and repair. Every word, every word of that rings so clearly in my head. I think the audience will now understand why I wanted you to read it. This event is in the visions of a better future strand of the book festival, I realised yesterday. I don't think either they or you could have been thinking quite how funny the particular weather was going to get when they programmed this event. And I wanted to start off, I want to, to talk to you lots about the book, but I wanted to start off just by asking Olivia, how are you? How have you been? What has got you through this? I mean, I think I've been very lucky in that I work 
alone and in a very sort of lockdown environment much of the time anyway although I had a book out I was also finishing a book that I've been working on for the last five years and it coincided with the most sort of heightened part of lockdown so really I was doing exactly what I'd normally be doing I was in my study and I was writing long hours um and that sort of gave me a focus and an anchor to to get through the frightening time. At the same time, like everybody, I've badly missed my family. I've badly missed my friends. Um, my stepmother died a week ago and my father was only able to say goodbye to her in full PPE, wearing gloves, not able to hold hands. So it, the COVID crisis has certainly come pretty close to home. But at, at the same time, being able to make work has, has stabilised me. That's, that's one of the powers of it, I think. You write really wonderfully about process, actually, about, about art as the, art, the filming, not the film, you say, of Derek Jarman, the, the art making, that the painting is the act of looking. Do you think that, do you think doing, actually, rather than looking, has, has helped you in some way? Is it the doing? I think it absolutely is. So a, a few years ago, I was working with my friend Chantal Joffe, who's a painter, on, um, we were putting on a show of the painter Sagi Mann, who's not by no means the most well-known artist in this work, but very, very interesting painter. And he had gone blind late in his career, but he'd carried on painting. And Chantal and I were in his studio and we were both thinking, well, isn't this a great tragedy for a painter? You wouldn't be able to see your finished work. You wouldn't know what it looked like. And we came to this sort of conclusion that actually... It, you don't want to look at the end product. That isn't what it means to be an artist. What you want to do is to make something, to solve the problems, to answer the questions. And I think that is um, a hugely sustaining and exciting process. You want to engage politically and in a lived way with the world, but at the same time, there's a sense that you're doing, that you're purposeful. And you know that's a great blessing in life, I think, to be purposeful is a great blessing. So what does that make the finished product then for you? What, is it, what does it make this book? Is this book a, a relic of the doing and the thinking or is it a, a simulacrum of that? What, is it, what does it make the, this is not how I was in, intending to start this talk at all, but brilliant. what does it make this? What is that as an object then? I was going to say it's like dead hair, <laughs> but it's not. Because it's also an object I feel really tender towards, but it's sort of... I don't know if this is true for artists in other art forms, but I think for a writer, you know, you you think of the ideas, you write them down, you, you get to that point, and then it has its own life. It's off, it's in the world. It exists for readers, it exists inside people's heads, hopefully, if you're lucky, and that it feels not at all... There's, there's a moment when I'm writing where it feels like things get very sort of hot and volcanic and exciting, and then they cool abruptly, and suddenly it's no longer alive to me anymore. It's something else, so... Yeah, it's an independent thing. There it is next to you. <laughs> I set it free. <laughs> it's a strange thing, I suppose, for you now, though, because you're writing a book. The book you're writing now is not... Is, this book is a, quite a different book, isn't it? It's a collection of writing about other people's art making and other people's writing. Do you feel you've been able, in, during the pandemic, to look enough? Have you had enough? Have you had enough culture to make this space. You talk so beautifully about art's capacity to make things better, to make a frame in which to, a frame to put round stuff and think about stuff in. Have you had enough of that? I think I have felt, and I'm sure this is true of so many people, really starved of looking at art. I've read and read and read and read lots of 19th century novels. I've read Dickens and Austen. I had a brilliant time doing it, but I miss paint. 
I don't want to go to an online viewing room. I'm not going to. I want to go into the gallery and look at a painting. And I'm surprised, really. I'm not, I don't think of myself as somebody who's especially fetishistic about objects, but I've badly missed that. I've, I've felt like there's a sort of pang. And like I say, I think I was lucky that I was at the end of a book because during the beginning stages, looking is an urgent activity and I have to look and look and look at lots of different things to sort of springboard into the work later on it's it's sort of easier and I've built up a kind of image bank in my head of things that I have seen but no I've I've really missed it the idea of the sort of shuttered gallery has been heartbreaking it's a lovely thing though isn't it that sense that that all the looking you've done imprints itself on the back of your retina or whatever and you've got it inside you I think Yes, and you, as I say, you write, you write about that kind of work, don't you, that puts you, that, that makes the spectator, makes the, makes the spectator a participant. It's a generous, it's generous work that you like, that I suppose that does that. I think so, yeah, and it's work that you can live with. But also, I think there are things that you can see that seem meaningless or that you don't connect with at the time, and they come back to you years later, or you sort of reach the moment where you awaken to them, and... That's one of the things that I find really interesting. It's a sort of capacious, you said elastic, but I think capacious as well, quality of art, that you encounter the art object, you encounter the novel at a moment when suddenly it unlocks for you and you can't believe how relevant it is. I mean, reading Bleak House by Dickens, I'd never read it before, and it's it's about a pandemic, it's about quarantine, it's about people in locked rooms, it's about isolation, all of these things. And, you know, if I'd read it a year before, I'm sure some things would have felt very relevant, but when you read or when you look at the right thing in the right moment, it's electrifying. I think art does that, doesn't it? It comes and gets you where, where you are. It comes out to meet you. you. You see yourself within it when you need it and where you need it. Um, I want to ask you, I'm interested in the art and artists you choose. You talk about resistance and repair, which I think are two fantastic words for art, and I'm going to steal them. I hope that's okay. When talking about when talking about why you know why art's important, I'm going to totally steal those. I hope that's all right. And I wanted, I think I wanted to start with Derek Jarman. If you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit, resuming a little bit from the book, how you encountered Derek Jarman, why why he's important for you, why he's one of these artists, why he's a touchstone, because I think he is for you. He's very much. Yeah, I think he really is my touchstone artist in that I encountered him when I was in my early teens. I grew up in a gay family and in those days his films were not only shown on Channel 4 but often commissioned by Channel 4, an extraordinary moment where experimental filmmaking was supported. It's funny, he complains all the time that it's not supported enough but looking back it was a golden age. <laughs> um, so I saw his films and... Soon after that, early in the 90s, I read Modern Nature, which is his extraordinary diaries about making a garden, a prospect cottage in Dungeness, this sort of sublimely unlikely garden on a shingle beach, hard up against a nuclear power station. And he started to make it just after he'd been diagnosed with AIDS. So he was one of the very few people at that time to come out publicly as having AIDS. He was an amazingly brave activist and voice in the world. But at the same time, and this is where repair comes into it, at the same time, he made this magical garden out of nothing, out of scrap, out of things that washed in on the sea and plants that he sort of shoved in with a dollop of manure and that bloomed into this mesmerizing place, which 
has outlived him and has actually, I was involved in the campaign by Art Fund to preserve the house and garden and it's just been saved for the nation in perpetuity. So it, it's an example of a artwork that at the time seemed precarious and fragile and has proved itself to be robust and nourishing and it, an extraordinarily vivifying place, I think. And I suppose a kind of category defying artwork as well. I mean, when we think of, I think we do think of the garden now a lot, don't we? But Jarman's a filmmaker. Those films are amazing. And he made a lot of them when he was very ill. Absolutely. But also, and there was a show at Immer, the, the big gallery in Dublin last year, and they made a case for Jarman as an extraordinary painter, a painter of the 60s, 70s, 80s, who was making really, really powerful, strong work. And I think this is an interesting thing of I'm often drawn to artists who exceed categories, who cross boundaries. And those artists often have a real rough ride in their lifetimes because I think we are somehow uncomfortable with the idea that somebody's doing more than one thing at once. And maybe it takes some time to sort of wash over before they re-emerge as actually this is somebody who was making extraordinary work in multiple domains. He's a fantastic writer, obviously an amazing filmmaker, a garden designer who's been extraordinarily, um, you know, his, his influence can still very much be felt. This sort of polymath figure, and at the same time a thorn in the side of the establishment, which is very much the sort of artist I'm drawn to. Angry and cross, a lot of, a lot of the time, scared. I think you, you say you know, he alchemised terror into art, which is an incredible phrase, but yeah, so frightened and cross, and somehow yet generous and bright and brave. Did you know him? Did you meet him? I didn't know him, no, and one of the sort of real pleasures and privileges of the last couple of years has been encountering some people who did know him through being involved in the Emma show and the art fund. And um, no, I would have, I would have loved to have met him. He died when I was 14, maybe. Because you write about him with such love. I, when I finished the, the chapter on Jarman in the book, which I think is the, is an introduction to modern nature. It's a, it's a, yeah. and the, you, you end with a quotation from Jarman. And you, so, and then you say, it's how we all go in and out of the dark, but oh, to have given off such a blaze. And in my copy, I just write such love, to be, to be so loved. And that's, you know, that, that somebody who didn't know him, and I didn't know him either, but to, to be able to encounter or to bring such love and empathy to an artwork is, I think it makes you a very good looker and reader. And it's something that shines through the book, I think, this love you have your subjects but I wanted to ask you next about an artist I think you do know which is Ali Smith and that's it I do, it. I so do know <laughs> perhaps perhaps you could tell us a little bit about about Ali as I know not a visual artist but an artist for whom the visual is very very important and we're at a book festival after all so talk to me about Ali Smith Oh, I just think Ali is the most wonderful writer, the most fantastic novelist. I've known her for a long time. Probably when I first met her, her first novel, which is called Like, had come out. Right, amazing novel. Um, and I think she's just gone from strength to strength. So the two that I would be most drawn to talk about now are How to Be Both, that magical upending book, which has its two sets of narratives that are swapped around. So innovative, even to the mode of production. We think the novel is a very set thing. We know what they look like and she changes it. She, she radicalizes it. And um, that's a very beautiful book about painting and about looking and about art outliving the maker, which 
I find extremely moving. Um, and then the seasonal quartet, which has just come to an almighty crescendo with summer. Um, and what I was particularly excited about, I think the piece I wrote about her, the profile I wrote about her that's in Funny Weather was written just after autumn came out. And the idea that you could speed up the extremely glacially slow publishing cycle and get somebody to publish a book so that it came out hard on the heels of the events about which it is des describing. So in that book, it came out just after Brexit and it talked about Brexit. The new one has coronavirus in it. Normally you'd have this sort of year and a half lag between manuscript handed in and book appearing shops. And she's, she's compressed that and that, by doing that compression, made the novel speak into the moment in a way that it hasn't done for a long time. It, it feels like it has a sort of 19th century serialized sort of spirit to it. Innovative with language, tender, generous, like you said, cross. It's got a lot of crossness, prickly, um, and full of hope. What more could you want from a book right now? <laughs> It is amazing, isn't it? That's, we've talked earlier about the, the kind of art which meets you where you are or you find yourself in it at various stages. That one literally, does, that, that quartet comes and literally says you're, re you're reading about something you're going to be doing tomorrow, really. Was it inspirational for you for Crudo? Did you, did you take a bit of that chutzpah that I'm going to write about right now from that? The thing that she did, I think, for all writers, but I certainly seized on it, is revealed that publishers could actually publish very quickly. So it absolutely permitted what um, what I did with Crudo. Although when I wrote Crudo, which was written in real time over seven weeks, I, it wasn't actually intended to be published at all. It was a sort of game I was playing with myself and perhaps I'd, I don't know, bind up some copies and give them to my friends as a memento of a weird summer. And it wasn't until I got quite far through that I thought, maybe I'll maybe I'll just see what my agent thinks or so it, it sort of moved into being a project that was going to come out into the world quite quite slowly and I don't think I would have started writing it if I'd said this is my next book and you know it, it had to have a sense of privacy around it at the beginning because it's a massive gamble to suddenly write fiction. So back to process again really you wrote it for the pleasure of writing it more than to have it as a thing? I wrote it I don't think art has to be cathartic and I don't think art always is cathartic but that was absolutely a cathartic process I was absolutely freaked out by Trump as president it was the summer of 2017 and he was on Twitter permanently threatening nuclear war and I just felt like I wanted somewhere to put my anxiety and also very very clearly I felt like this is a moment that will be historicized this is a moment that will be discussed in the future and by then it will have a shape and a pattern and a coherence and people will know what's meaningful in the midst of it I didn't it all felt like it was random data and I was absolutely at sea amongst lumpy disturbing facts and I just wanted to write it down I wanted to make a log of it and Ali was certainly one of the influences, but also very strongly Christopher Isherwood's Goodbye to Berlin, that book that begins as an intimate memoir of romantic and romantic life and friendships in pre-war Berlin. And gradually the Nazi party start to appear, gradually the political world invades. And that sense of just logging something as it changes felt urgently like something I needed to do. So while we're on Twitter, while you're not on Twitter, in fact, which I think is very sensible. I wanted to ask you about 
the difference between paranoid reading on the one hand and reparative reading on the other. Now you talk about paranoid reading, which, which I would sort of characterise as Twitter doom scrolling, this sense that if you can only read enough, the world will calm down, will stop going crazy. But of course you can't read enough and you don't get the, you don't get the next thing. And there's, in the book you, you do really posit art as some kind of as an antidote to this, that art can do something better than this. Can you unpack that notion of paranoid reading a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, although I think you've just done it beautifully. Um, it's something that um, the queer theorist Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick came up with um, during the AIDS crisis. She had breast cancer, which later killed her. Many of her friends were dying. And she was very interested by this notion that there was a way of approaching the world that was paranoid, that had become paramount, that had become the dominant mode of reading, to try and find all the information you can, to look at conspiracy theories, to feel as if the more evidence you can uncover, the safer you will be, the more defended against disaster you will be. It's absolutely a valid way of approaching the world, but it is not the only way of approaching the world. So she wrote this very long essay, which is mostly about paranoid reading, at the very, very end, she floats a possibility, which I and many other people, I think, have found sort of bewitching and tantalising, which is this idea of reparative reading, that you might, instead of looking for information about how bad things are, try and gather up fragments of things that are sustaining to create a sort of collage of nourishment, to create something new that either supports you or other people or is a spanner in the works of a system that doesn't support you. Any of those things are possible. And I think we've been talking about Derek Jarman and he is absolutely the icon of reparative art. The, the garden that he made in Dungeness completely sums up what it might be to make reparative art, that you might choose to spend your time as an AIDS activist, but you might also choose to spend your time planting into a place that seemed infertile. That might be something that you could do and that might be something that is worth spending time doing. But you also find nourishment in less obviously beautiful art or art forms, less obviously nourishing or less obviously sustaining. I'm thinking, I mean, the, the spectre of AIDS really and the reality of AIDS runs throughout this book. You're clearly drawn to, you're drawn to artists living through that plague. If we're living through a plague now, my God, they were living through a plague and people still are. And I wanted to, to ask you a little bit to talk about that, that people like David Wonorovich, who who's making really quite hard art to look at and really quite brutal art. And how, how does that chime with this notion of repair? I think David Wonorovich is, um, like Jarman really, an artist of such sort of contrast, another person who wrote in many different mediums. And there's a real frankness and fury. I mean, you wouldn't say cross about David Wonorovich, you'd say livid, enraged, incandescent, a fury. Tell, and some tell of us a little bit about him, for people who don't know who he is, tell us a little bit about his background, because it's he, extraordinary. He, it's an extraordinary background. He, unlike Derek Jarman, who went to public school and came from a, quite a conventional background, David Wonorovich came from an abusive childhood in New Jersey. He um, ran away from home. He was a hustler in Times Square. Um, and he sort of educated himself, turned himself by real willpower into an artist. First of all, he really wanted to be a sort of beat writer. And I think writing was always something that was very important to him. He did write the most extraordinary memoir called Close to the Knives. Um, 
but then somebody gave him a camera and he started to make these photographs, a series called Rambo in New York, which is men walking through the city, black and white, dreamy pictures of people with a mask of Arthur Rambo and they're standing in the meatpacking district with corpses of cows behind them or they're in a diner or they're wandering through Times Square past the porn cinemas and they are just, they sort of epitomise urban isolation and longing and they became very central to me when I was working on The Lonely City. And they're very beautiful images and then as the AIDS crisis hit, his best friend, the photographer Peter Hujar, became ill and then died, and then David was diagnosed. And his work is understandably ferociously angry, but at the same time, even during that period, he was making things that were extraordinarily beautiful, tender, um, very like full of natural imagery, full of pools and frogs and he loved tiny creatures so you get this you really get that sort of spectrum of there's absolutely the the paranoid furious protest art that was really calling out Ronald Reagan or Jesse Hounds or these sort of figures who were causing devastation for communities afflicted by AIDS but at the same time tender work work that longs towards repair and even his most famous piece I suppose still is the stitched mouth so it's a photo of him lantern-jawed implacable with a stitched up mouth blood around the around the stitch marks and it's a it hits you like a hammer it's it's really really powerful it's making very visible the metaphor silence equals death but at the same time, again, there's this tenderness in it. There's there's this desire to communicate. There's this desire to be heard. And he said he was very close friends with photographer Nan Golden, and he said to her, "I want to make work that will communicate when I'm gone. I want to make work that speaks to somebody who feels as I do." And I think that is really at the core of the reparative: wanting to make something that gives to somebody else that you don't know, that you're not going to meet. That that generosity is there even among the rage. I think. Is there something, do you think, about not looking away, that, you've, that awful things are there and you're going to look right at them and deal right with them? I think that sense of the artist having a responsibility to bear witness means a lot to me. I don't think it's the only thing artists have to do, but for me personally, those are the kind of artists that I'm drawn to and that's the feeling that I have with my own work, is you have to, on some sense look at your times, acknowledge your times and make sense of your times. And our times are shit. There's so much to pay attention to and to change. Yes. I mean, when you talk in the introduction to Funny Weather about how in 2015, you know, things were pretty rubbish and they were, you're like, yeah, mm -hmm. had, had we known then <laughs> what we know now? Um, I'm going to move on to, it doesn't get any better, I'm sorry, but I really wanted to talk to you about violence. I wanted, the, the, your freeze columns, which have given the title to this book, it's like everyone is a perfect sort of nugget of something pretty dreadful actually, but of, of, of a way of, of encapsulating and explaining to us how artists explain to us how something really awful might be processed. And I, I wanted to drill a little bit into when you talk about violence, because you, you, there are two freeze columns, one that looks at Guston and one that looks at Anna Mendieta. And could you talk about those? Because there, we, there we've got two artists who are not looking away, who are really properly 
dealing with, with horror and processing it for us. Can you talk a little bit about them? Yeah, absolutely. I'm pleased you picked those two because those two were really, I was rehearsing ideas that are very much part of my new book, Everybody, which Philip Guston and Anna Mendieta each have a chapter of. So that, that was the very earliest sort of picking out what I might be wanting to say. But Philip Guston, I'll start with Philip Guston, who I started thinking about again after the Charlottesville Unite the Right rally that happened in 2017 and the next day I mean maybe even as soon as it happened it was all happening live on Twitter these sort of far-right militias and clansmen marching through an American city and it called to mind those Philip Guston clan paintings the late paintings he was painting as an abstract expressionist and in the 60s he suddenly changed to making these cartoonish livid, childlike, vicious paintings of clansmen carrying weapons, clansmen driving cars through empty, sinisterly empty cities, these sort of images that tried to grapple with, I think evil is not too strong a word, I think it's him looking at evil, and he he said something which I quote in Funny Weather, I quoted in Crude, and I've also quoted in Everybody, so I've obviously become completely fixated on this sort of statement, he said um, he'd been thinking a lot about the Holocaust and about how hard it was to escape. And he was saying that process, that process of waking up to the reality of the situation you're in is the first thing you have to do before you can change the reality. You have to acknowledge it. And it is so easy to become numb to it. It's so easy for the victims. It's so easy for the tormentors to become trapped in the sort of numb, this is the only world ever. And he said, that's the point of art, it's to wake us up, it's to teach us how to cut through the wire, to escape. He doesn't mean escape reality as in zone out, he means change, change the world you're in. And that, it electrified me. He, he's obviously an artist who was burdened and indeed deeply unhappy by the responsibilities that he felt were his, the responsibilities of being in the world paying attention to the world, looking at the world. And yet he makes these works that speak loudly and make sense very vividly decades after he died. And I think, you know, they don't stop the clan from rising again, but they help us to think about it. They help us to make sense of what our emotional feelings might be. They help us to lose the numbness and I think that is one of the things that art can do it snaps you into a real response and then you can think what you want to do next so in a way they are calls to action they 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 stop us feeling numb they make us want to do something we look at them and we think we've got to do something about this and do then it is they don't solve it they're not political in that sense they don't tell us what to do it's something else. It's some just dislodging effect, I think. And I think you can say the same about Anna Mendieta, who is political in a different way. And the, the works I was thinking about, particularly at that time, were the rape pieces that she made when she was a student at the University of Iowa doing her MFA. And um, they were astonishingly violent and visceral. She reenacted a rape that had happened on, on the college campus. And what are those works doing? What is the point of doing that? Is that tacky? Is that intrusive? Is that reenacting the violence? 
Well, no, I don't think it is. I think it's a way of saying, I refuse to let this fall into the blind spot of culture. I will keep dragging this blood stain into the light until something changes. And I think that is what art can do. It's not going to make the change itself. It's not a political force. It's something else. It's a way of galvanizing. It's a way of grouping a sort of response. Do you think it's a way of, do you think hers was a way of attempting to take control? And maybe Gustin's was as well, to say this is, this is a bit, I can take some control here, I can control this bit and show how out of control we are of the rest? I think there's something definitely going on with control in hers because, you know, she reenacted these tableaux and then she invited her cohort, her, her fellow students to come and see an incredibly aggressive thing to do. I mean, this is well before the era of trigger warnings, but trigger warning, that's a really stressful thing to do to your friends. And she stayed completely motionless for an hour. And there were other works in the same series where, you know, she arranged sort of murder scenes in the woods for anyone to stumble across. And they're, they're gruesome, they're frightening, they're deeply disturbing so I think that that is really about control and Guston as well he says over and over that he's he was trying with those things to think his way inside the white hood to think what it meant to be a person who could do those things you know he was a Jewish person whose family had escaped pogroms he knew what it meant to be the victim and he wanted to understand what it meant to be the perpetrator in order to stop it I'm going to move us on to freedom now. I'm going to have a little bit, I think that you know, the, the subjects that you write about are bleak and I think you do write about art's power to, to make it more bleak in order for us to try and make it less bleak somehow, which I think is fascinating and fantastic. But I wanted to ask you about freedom and feminism and the free, you write about women and alcohol, which I like a lot, it interests me. And why do, you, why do you write about women and alcohol? Is there something, you, you say somewhere in the book that freedom, the, the assertion of freedom is important to you. Is there a particular kind of feminist freedom that you're interested in? Alcohol might be a side issue, I don't know. It's funny, so I'd written a book years ago that was about men and drinking and I got asked all the time, well, what about the women, what about the women? And eventually I wrote that essay, which is an essay that I'm, really like I really like it in a way that I don't always like my own work and um, but the stories were so much more interesting because the reasons they were drinking were political they were drinking because their lives their talent their genius in many ca cases was absolutely warped limited refused the, these are people like Jean Rees, Marguerite Durand, Patricia Highsmith fantastically talented writers, Jane Bowles. Jane Bowles had a breakdown and her psychiatrist said to her, go back to your pots and pans, Mrs. Bowles, you're not coping. I mean, this is one of the great modernist story writers of history. So this, this sense that the alcohol there wasn't the sort of prop that it had been in people like Hemingway or Fitzgerald's lives, it was, it was something else. It was driven by a sort of stopping up of talent, deliberate stopping up of talent, a ferocious self-wounding because of lack of room to manoeuvre, because of lack of freedom. You're right, it's the right word. So I think that is an essay about sort of the shadow side of freedom. What happens when you don't have freedom? What happens when you're living in an incredibly constrained world? Feminist freedom, I mean, you know, I was brought up by a 
extremely feminist lesbian single mother I, I kind of came up in that <laughs> mixed utopia dystopia um and it, the the women that I write about in this book I think all articulate it differently there's Hilary Mantel there's Ali Smith there's Sarah Lucas and they're all women who have had to carve out not in the same way as people in the early 20th century did but certainly still had to cut their way into a freer world there's there's a brilliant story about Sarah Lucas, the Brit artist Sarah Lucas, saying um, when she was a child, she was incredibly tongue-tied. She could barely speak. And one day, a boy in her school stole her pen and she just could not let that happen. And she fought him and she pulled his hair and she got her pen back. And magically, it unlocks her tongue. She can speak. And that sense, I feel like that's something that many women artists have to go through, many gender fluent trans artists have to go through this sense of I will seize my voice I will claim my voice and I will have to fight to do that so that that sense of freedom is something that isn't just available but has to be grasped and has to be fought for I think it's a thread that runs right through the book and you take it yeah you take it from Georgia O'Keeffe you take it from Agnes Martin the two kind of go out there and find it in the wilderness artist sort of iconic artist for finding a way uh, finding a place to be free and then Sarah Lucas and it's a, it's a wide-ranging sense of freedom although I think that you you you, you dig right into George O'Keefe as well it's a, it's I am interested in how you how you're drawn to writing about artists lives as well as artists work you seem to find a way of writing about the life that gets you to the work do you are you interested in in tracing how people live their lives as well as make their work? Yeah, absolutely. I just don't think that the work and the life are separate from each other. I, it's not that I think all works have a biographical interpretation because I don't, but the sense of how a work emerges from a particular life and what kind of problems the artist themselves is trying to solve, that, that really is sort of an ongoing interest in all of those profiles. What are they doing? Why are they doing this? George Rakeef actually as a, is a painter who I was never interested in in the slightest. I don't particularly like her paintings. But once I started reading about her and realised the sort of stakes and the things that she was trying to do, the sort of territory that she was trying to grab and command, suddenly the work comes to life for me. And I think that's something that I'm trying to share in those essays is okay, this is what this person is trying to do. Some of the work, we're so familiar with it, we can barely see it. Andy Warhol, for example. We know it too well. And once you return to the small boy in Pittsburgh, who, again, is very tongue-tied and shy and a complete hypochondriac, et cetera, et cetera, and you start to see the sort of battle that somebody had to become who they became, it, I think it becomes exciting again in a different way it feels to me like it's a way of really revealing so much of what's alive in the work so much of what remains alive in the work that's lovely that sense that if we're back at process again aren't we if you can if you can have a look at why someone's making what they make then you can find you can find something really powerful even in art that you thought wasn't going to speak to you i'm getting the tablet i'm going to look for questions now um here we go Right. I'm going to go with a question from Charlotte. She says, 2020 has been a huge year for social change, especially with protests such as Black Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter recently. 
With the exception of just adding artworks from black artists to art gallery collections, how do you think that the art world needs to adapt to respond effectively to events such as Black Lives Matter? I don't think it's just about the artists that are in the collection. I think it's about the institutions. I think it's about who works at the institutions. And I don't think it should be a matter of lip service of we have an internship. I think it has to be structural and it has to go all the way to the top. It's got to be. Otherwise, you're just not going to see that sort of change. Anyone can go out and say, I'm going to buy one painting by an artist of colour. And that that really is not enough. And then I think the other thing is how shows are commissioned, how shows are thought about, what kind of stories they're telling. Because there's often, if not almost always, a blind spot about how does this involve the many people of colour who've lived in this country through history? That has to be brought into it. And really, the only way you can do that is to have a diverse staff. You have to. You have to have diverse rooms of people who are making decisions. I think, yeah, if someone runs an art organisation, yes, you're absolutely right there. I think there is also... For me, there's a lot that artists can do in this as well. I, I was watching an event with Roger Robinson at this book festival, absolute clarion call for the arts and how, how, how we can do an awful lot better. Really, really interesting, I think. Um, another question from Kitty. She asks, you mentioned in your reading at the start that you consider empathy as a practice rather than an emotion. Are there certain aesthetic modes or certain types of art that you think lend themselves to this kind of emotional exercise? That is a really good question. Perhaps it changes from person to person. I think, I mean, I feel like I'm talking about Dickens a lot this evening for some reason, <laughs> but you know, Dick, Dickens is somebody who wants you to take on the work of empathy. He wants you to do that. Hardy wants you to do that in a way that Virginia Woolf doesn't particularly care whether you do or not. That's not her agenda. So these sort of politically minded, socially minded writers are often trying to engender those sort of responses in the reader. And I think there's paintings as well that really are trying to conjure feeling. But I think also it's, again, it's a sort of diversity question. It's empathy is really about imagining your way into other people's realities. It's about, as the writer Sarah Shulman says, the acknowledgement that other people are real. So any work that takes you deeply into the reality of another person is offering itself to your empathetic capabilities. It's offering itself to teach you to extend your own generosity, your own imagination into somebody else's life. And I think this is why I think art is so crucial to a civilization. The more we can do that work, the more we can do that imaginative work of taking in the reality of other people, ethics arises from that, justice arises from that. The baseline is we are not just solipsistic individuals. We are part of a community of other realities. What takes us there? Art. And you, this is me now, not, not the question. Do you think that lockdown has made that harder or not? Is, has lockdown made empathy harder when you're not actually with people or has it actually made it easier because the intimacy of screen to screen is quite a thing? Really? Or has it made no difference? I think it did. I think at the beginning, especially when it, it really felt like everyone's in the same boat in a way that it became clear later that everyone wasn't in the same boat. Um, I think that sense of a mass revelation of our vulnerability has a sort of seismic effect on people. Maybe that seismic effect didn't last for very long, but I think there was really a moment where people were very aware, A, that they were physically vulnerable, and B, 
that we are absolutely interconnected and dependent on the postman, dependent on the bin collector, that these people who have been denigrated systematically over generations are actually absolutely vital to us. So I think what I'm saying, that that, that idea of the reality of other people, it was borne out very vividly at the beginning of lockdown. It's also a revelation, though, that's very easy to lose, particularly if you have a careless government who very invested in you not thinking those kind of thoughts. I mean, I suppose there was a sense as well, wasn't there, certainly early in lockdown, that we were all watching the same things on the telly or reading the same books. I remember, you know, to have the most ridiculous sort of distributed book club that we were all reading Mango Fabulous Hamlet all at the same time, but completely by accident, all of us sobbing in the garden. Um, <laughs> There is something that's kind of strangely that I think there have been, although at this point where we haven't actually been able to get into museums and galleries, there, there have been other kind of art forms that have bound us together, maybe. I think so, yeah. And also it has been a moment where, you know, as a writer, I'm very happy to sort of think people have been reading, people have been remembering that books can be enormously consoling, aside from all their wild possibilities, they are just actually consoling. And thinking about how you're reading, I suppose, that you do, we do have, an, you know, we're back to paranoid reading, the doom scrolling or the, or the drilling slightly more deeply into an artist's version of it, an artist's alchemy. Um, okay, here's a question. If an artist's politics are dubious, does it affect how you view their work? Oh, it's the biggest question. It's such a big question. Um, Yes, of course it does. Of course it does. Um, and at the same time, this, I mean, I just think this is the hardest question. I think there's a sense in which you cannot judge an artist by the information and the cultural landscape that you're in in the moment. You can't expect them to know things that they can't possibly have known. At the same time, there are artists that I think it's just impossible to, to look at or to read now. That There's just too much baggage, too much racism, and it becomes unbearable. It, it, it's no longer speaking at all in a way that is valid. Um, that doesn't mean that I want them sort of deleted from the libraries. I think there are there are ways to there are ways to remember how people thought in the past and i think it's important to keep remembering how people thought in the past it's it's very similar to the statues question i absolutely think that the statues should be torn down but i don't think that means that you're saying we should completely forget that those people were ever regarded as deserving statues we have to remember that we were once a culture that thought that that we're still a culture that many people think that you you have to preserve that sense that reality was as it was and then we can change and then we can make something different but just the idea of sort of erasing altogether makes me feel very uncomfortable as a historian as an archivist more than anything else it makes me uncomfortable but no I think you, you can't just say, well, they're an artist, so therefore their politics are excusable. I don't think you can anymore. I think that's a great answer. Thank you. That's the toughest question, though. And yes. yeah. But, you know, that's what art helps us do, doesn't it? Ask the tough questions, answer the tough questions. Or even if we can't answer them, look at them. Look at them yeah. eye to eye and try and think them through. 
and stay in uncertainty. I think that desire to sort of collapse into, I've got an answer to this, you know, as, as politicians do, is not always the wisest course, especially at the moment. There's so much sort of bubbling around. There's such a change happening politically. I think it's really important to be able to say, I don't know. I don't know yet. I'm thinking about this and I don't know yet. I agree. Okay, final question. Uh, this crisis has had a oh yes, this crisis has had a profound impact on arts and culture, with galleries, museums, and theatres closed and facing huge practical and financial challenges if and when they open. Looking to the future, I know. Thanks. Um, looking to the future, what aspects of pre-COVID arts and culture would you like to save, change, discard? What would you save? What would you chuck out? We've got you've got maybe two minutes to answer this, so. Uh. I mean, I think one of the things, I was thinking about this before we started the event, one of the things that's become so clear is that art is not something that just happens in the studio or the, the study. It's not a private enterprise. It's absolutely part of this huge communal infrastructure. And we don't have an art world. We don't have an art life without those institutions. We need libraries. We need galleries. We need those spaces. I mean, Personally, I could live without art fairs. That's fine. That can go. I don't want people flying across the world all the time. Um, but the, the sort of civic spaces, absolutely vital. Charleston, the, the Bloomsbury outpost, home of Vanessa Bell and Duncan Grant, is dreadfully imperiled now. That's a place that is so culturally important. I mean, the South Bank... I find what's happening with South Bank truly heartbreaking because this is an institution that was established just after the Second World War at this moment of real crisis, real cultural and financial crisis with the idea that art is for all of us. Art is a place of uplift. It's a cultural resource that we share. And for that to be a place that's decided to get rid of its lowest paid workers to make it much more profit orientated is wrong. That is what I want to see is a society that is supporting its arts on a national and local level. And I think that is just beyond crucial now. So I'm very nervous about the sort of landscape that we're going to emerge into. But I also think that people are coming out of this galvanised, that there's a sense that we do believe that our art world matters, that the landscape of art and art for everybody is something that cannot be dispensed with not now could we just bottle you could we bottle what you have to say and sprinkle it liberally <laughs> such an absolutely beautiful plea for the value of culture thank you for me personally thank you for that and i'm sure for the entire audience thank you for that so thank you for that question and thank you yeah. for that extraordinary questions thank you for those extremely challenging questions i know what well, I, I can't believe we've been speaking for an hour that has flown by and has been blissful for me and i'm sure i hope interesting for everyone at home i'm going to do the pitch now buy this book buy this book read this book you've you've heard the lady she's extraordinary uh, do buy the book i'm also going to say buy the book from the book festival there's a button you can press on your screen to buy from the book festival it's an independent bookshop it pays tax it um, does everything it should do. Buying from the, from the Edinburgh International Book Festival, to give it its full name, supports it and sustains it. So please do that. If you already have the book, which I'm sure you do, you can donate anyway. You can hit the other button um, and donate to the Edinburgh Book Festival. These events are free. Um, 
I, I find that amazing. You know, Olivia's just said how institutions, we all need to rethink how we sustain our big institutions. We all need to be careful of our big institutions, I think, and our small institutions and our artists. Um, but if you, are, if you are minded and moved to donate something to the book festival in, in thanks for this event, then please do. But really, of course, the person to thank is Olivia. That was gorgeous. Thank you so much. Thank you for giving us your time. Thank you for letting us come into your new house. Extraordinarily <laughs> like that. I'm so impressed you actually have something on the wall. That's, yeah, you shouldn't have done that when you've only moved in two weeks. Out. it's actually very badly hung <laughs> i'll come round. we'll sort it out no thank you so much that was a really really interesting hour can i'm going to ask everyone at home please to join me in saying thank you to livia because that's how i like to end an event but thank you so so much it was a it was a real pleasure thank you for listening find out more about the edinburgh international book festival at edbookfest.co.uk and by following us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at edbookfest. You can hear more events by subscribing to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and you can also watch a selection of our events in full on our website and YouTube channel.